What's up, everyone? Welcome back to The Planet Today. Today is Friday, April 1st, 2022. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here once again with producer and co-host extraordinaire Nick Janusa. Nick, how's it going? Matty, it is going very well. I, I'm trying to think of like a good April Fool's joke, but I don't have one. So everyone just be sure to make at least one good April Fool's joke today and then just laugh at yourself for being so stupid. Stay tuned. You might catch one later this episode, maybe. Oh. Allegedly. <laughs> Are you holstering that for later in the show? We'll see. We'll see. I am. <laughs> okay, sounds good. So big week musically for me. Um, one of my kings, Harry Styles, announced a new single dropping today. Uh, I have not listened to it yet because the show comes out at five in the morning. It's probably awesome. 10 out of 10. <laughs> Harry's great. Uh, it's called As It Was. And then earlier this week, I got Bon Iver's self-titled album, 10th Anniversary Edition on vinyl. Uh, it's my favorite album of all time. Super pumped about the anniversary edition. And if you're watching on TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, that picture that I'm pointing at right now is the album artwork. And then those are all the singles from that album. So big fan. Huge fan. I love Bunny Bear as well. Um, that album is filled with memories for me. So that's a great album. Definitely go check it out. Justin Vernon, if you're listening, thank you for everything you have done for this beautiful music you've put out. <laughs> Also come on the show. Yes, we'll talk about uh, living in cabins and stuff. He has a song like the, about climate change. On, no way, uh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Gelmore on I and I. Oh, but shoot, okay. Anyway, people are probably bored of me. Let's get into the show. Welcome to the planet today. Here on TPT, we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy with two episodes every week coming your way Monday and Friday. This show is your one-stop shop for all things environmental, whether you're just diving into a green lifestyle or you're ready for some more involved conversations about what can be some complex topics. TPT has a little bit for everyone, so we are happy to have you here. Yes, and please go rate the show on Spotify and rate it and review it on Apple Podcasts as well. Helps us immensely. More than you know. So thank you to everyone who's already reviewed it. And if you haven't, please do. We will read it on the show. Yes. And all right, let's move on to our quick hits for the week. So our first one is titled, Coal, Cleaner Than You Think. Yeah, this one surprised me a lot because we always talk about how bad coal is, but April Fool's, coal sucks. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Very quick. Did not holster that for too everybody. long. You didn't holster <laughs> that for more than five minutes. I love it, Matt. All right. So the real first one <laughs> is titled Revealed. Ships may dump oil up to 3,000 times a year in Europe's waters. By the Guardians, Laura Pattison, Beatrice Romalo da Silva, Max Bernhard, and Max Muller. The investigation in this article found that the scale of illegal bilge dumping which is a mix of liquids from the engine room of a ship that can contain potentially toxic substances, is much higher than previously acknowledged. It's expensive to deal with bilge water because you have to offload it at a port or remove the pollutants with treatment. So some ships try to just 
dump it directly into the oceans to cut their own costs. Yeah, and this should come as a, as no surprise, but bilge dumping is obviously harmful for marine life. The investigation by Lighthouse Reports used satellite technology, whistleblowers' testimonies, and freedom of information requests to document hundreds of potentially illegal oil spills from ships, according to the authors. Yeah, and they also found that countries have been slow to act on these spills, and prosecution levels were low for cases involving the spills. Yeah, and I mean, this all makes sense when you put it that way, because look, if all they're getting is a slap on the wrist and, you know, slow response times, of course they're going to keep trying to do it because it cuts their own costs. And I mean, at the end of the day, that's kind of number one for a lot of companies. Yeah, and we got to have Kieran on, who's our buddy, who's in the Philippines right now. Um, He works on a boat, huge boat. Uh, We got to have him talk about Bilgewater. That'd be great. Yeah, and Kieran, we will also redact any information except for your own personal information because we already kind of doxed you on this episode. But yeah, if you ever want to come <laughs> on, we will uh, let you tell some <laughs> industry secrets. <laughs> yes, please, with open arms. Marine oil spills are monitored by the European Maritime Safety Agency, or EMSA, through its Clean Sea Net Initiative, which has identified oil spills and sent alerts to the relevant EU country since 2007. The country is supposed to send a boat or a plane to check out the spill because sometimes algal blooms or discharges of vegetable or fish oil, which are actually both legal and don't really harm the waters that much, will trigger the EMSA system. Clean Sea Net data from 2020 found that out of 7,672 potential spills, only a third were investigated and only 208 were confirmed to be oil slicks. And another issue was the time it took to investigate the spills. So longer times between the alert and the on-site check increased the chance that the countries would report nothing observed. Only 1.5% of the 7,939 spills in 2019 were verified within three hours by authorities. Just a, a wild statistic. And the article also says that even if countries identify potential illegal bilge dumping in their waters, they don't have to disclose what action is then taken. So when action is taken, fines are usually pretty lackluster, and honestly, they've been very sporadic. Penalties for illegal bilge dumping for Carnival's Princess Cruises, for example, included $40 million in 2016, but cases like that are few and far between. In some cases, it's actually cheaper to illegally dump the oil at sea, according to Christian Boussaw, who's a marine biologist with Greenpeace. I mean, so what is it then? Do they have to get like these reserve tanks on their on their ships in order to get rid of this this bilge? There's treatment methods that they said it's just they're expensive. Like you can you can treat the water before it gets dumped out. It's essentially like cleaning it before it gets integrated into the sea. Right. Okay. But again, that's expensive and it cuts into the bottom line and it's cheaper to just hope that you don't get fined. And especially because most of the time with the fines, they're not usually that much. So it turns out to be cheaper even if you do get fined. And that's the issue here. It's it's a thing that seems difficult to enforce, but with the clean sea net data, it's getting much easier now to enforce this than it was pre-2007. So yeah, I don't know. I, I think that this was just kind of a, a disappointing story. Yeah, definitely. Agreed. All right, let's move on to the next one here, and it is from Government Executive, where Eric Katz writes, USPS could serve nearly all its mail routes in electric vehicles, a watchdog says. A new analysis found that the U.S. Postal Service can reasonably support roughly 99% 
of its routes every day using entirely electric vehicles. The same study also found that the upfront costs to replace the existing fleet with electric would be much lower than they initially predicted. The USPS Inspector General's findings should encourage postal management to cancel plans to replace their current fleet with new internal combustion engine vehicles, which are basically just newer, more modern versions of what they already have. And we can get into this later, but they look so dumb, the new design. (laughs) (laughs) The Biden administration encouraged an entirely electric fleet, and lawmakers encouraged the Inspector General to conduct additional work related to the USPS's contract for vans and trucks. In less legal terms, this means maybe we can still get that 100% electric fleet. Yeah, and the average postal route is about 24 miles of driving, and almost all routes are less than 70 miles. The current technology for electric vehicles can easily handle those mail routes, and the inspector general is quoted as saying, As the technology has evolved, there is no longer any question that electric vehicles can serve the functions necessary for postal delivery. Yeah, this is something that I probably should have looked up, but I know that like modern electric cars can go up to 400 miles on a charge. Yeah. I don't know what that looks like for the types of vans um, or trucks that they're talking about with this USPS fleet. Right. But look, even if it's a fraction of that, it can definitely handle... 24 to 70 miles for sure. So I don't know. This just seems like kind of a no brainer. It's, it's better for the environment, which is something that the current administration is pushing for. It's going to be more economical in the long term because you know, you don't have to pay for gas. <laughs> like, yeah, you don't have to pay for the cost of then further mitigating climate change because you're not helping cause it as much anymore. I don't know. It's kind of a, a win win here. Yeah, definitely. And then also just like, I only know this because my girlfriend's dad is, is a postman. Um, but like they don't have air conditioning in the summer. So like they are literally just grinding in the hot summer heat, like 90 degree temperatures. They're out there every day, rain or shine, just, just plugging along. So air conditioning is a big one. And then they also are going to have like a bunch of other features in these EVs. That's going to make it just so much easier and better for these drivers. So like, um, backup cameras, 360 cameras, blind spot warnings, all this stuff to make it a way safer drive. I would imagine with the new internal combustion fleet, they would have backup cameras. I hope otherwise, like what's the point of upgrading (laughs) the fleet if it's not going to be like a way better vehicle, but anyway, they can make it so much better by switching to electric. And, you know, like Nick said, it's better conditions for the drivers with that. So along with that and along with lower emissions from electric vehicles, they require way less maintenance than traditional cars. With electric vehicles, there's fewer moving parts. There's regenerative braking. And the energy costs associated with charging an electric vehicle are a lot more stable than gas prices. The inspector general did find that over the 20-year lifespan of the vehicles, electric vehicles had an 11% higher cost than gas power vehicles. But that's partially because of buying and installing chargers, which right now there's no electric uh, post office cars. They need all new chargers. They need a whole new network of chargers for the USPS. But since much of the fleet wouldn't need daily charging, because like we said, we're talking about 24 miles on average. Almost all of them are under 70 miles. You can cut that down to one charger for every two cars in the USPS fleet. And that would actually make the entire electric vehicle fleet 8% cheaper than traditional cars. So by cutting the number of chargers in half, 
we're looking at a 19% swing in cost savings. Yeah, and like you mentioned, like if the range for one charge is maybe 300 miles, let's say you could you could have the you know those lower routes go four, five, six days without charging, and then you know the ones that are on the higher end, whatever. It's just it makes it a lot easier. And you could absolutely, like you just said, have much less chargers in order to to service the entire fleet. Yeah, and, and let's even play it super conservatively and say, look, these are big, heavy vans and you know, the trucks obviously are bigger and heavier. They're gonna have have less efficiency. Right. Let's say it's a hundred miles per charge, you're still looking at every four days on average. Or the one where it's seventy miles once a day, but again, ninety-nine percent of these cars, trucks, and vans are going under 70 miles. Exactly. So one last thing from the article to close it out, the USPS has committed to making just 10% of the 165,000 new vehicles it plans to buy electric, though Postmaster General Louis DeJoy has indicated he would be willing to go much further if Congress provided the funds. Postal management said it could fully electrify its fleet with an injection of $6.9 billion dollars, $3 $3 billion for the higher costs of the vehicles, and $3.9 billion for chargers. If such funding were provided, the inspector general said the lifetime cost of electric vehicles would be 11% lower than gas vehicles. The White House and congressional Democrats have both proposed funding $6 billion to the USPS to electrify its fleet, though the vehicle for that funding, the Build Back Better Act, remains in limbo. So let's hope Build Back Better can pass, and let's hope that leads to a fully electric uh, fleet with a ton of chargers for the USPS. That would be awesome. Yeah, agreed. That would be sweet. And I, I know it's also cost effective, but it also is just, it's more enticing to be a, a postal worker and makes their lives a lot easier too. So win-win. Tip your post people on Christmas. <laughs> yes. All right. So this next story is by Sharin Ali of The Hill, who writes, massive new wind farm goes online in Oklahoma. The Traverse Wind Energy Center is officially online and is projected to save people from Oklahoma, Arkansas, and Louisiana $3 billion over the next 30 years in electricity costs. Its 356 wind turbines produce 1,484 megawatts of energy, or 3.8 million megawatt hours every year. It's the largest wind farm built in one time in North America, and the largest of American Electric Power's three wind projects in the continent. Yeah, so they're based out of Columbus, Ohio, but operate across Arkansas, Indiana, Kentucky, Louisiana, Michigan, Ohio, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Texas, Virginia, and West Virginia. AEP is an electricity company first, not a renewable energy company, so their current power generation looks like this. 45% from coal, 28% from natural gas, 7% from nuclear, and 17% from wind, hydro, and other sources. They have begun investing $8.2 billion in renewables and almost $25 billion in transmission and distribution systems, which is huge because that's what's going to help modernize the grid as a whole. AEP's chairman, president, and CEO, Nicholas K. Atkins, says that this will also enhance reliability and resilience while delivering more emissions-free energy to their customers. The goal is to add 16,000 megawatts of wind and solar to their north central region by 2030 and to hit zero carbon emissions by 2050. So, look, this is awesome. And I think this really points out that the writing is on the wall for companies like this. You know, renewables are going to be more profitable moving forward. Renewables are also clean and 
have a much better impact on the environment than continuing to drill for oil or burn coal. So this is really a win-win, and it's awesome to see them investing in not just the energy, but the infrastructure needed to supply that energy. Yeah, this is this is definitely a win-win. Great story. And I'm wondering, you know, how many houses are going to benefit from this? How many houses can be powered by, you know, 16,000 megawatts of wind and solar? There's a way to figure that out. We're going to Google that and we will get back to you after the break. Planet Today is brought to you by Vala Alta. Vala Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance, daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valaalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT. Welcome back to the planet today, folks. To answer Nick's question from before the break, got my old Google fingers out. <laughs> 16,000 megawatts is enough to power 1.6 million homes. So, wow. Big news. That's great. Fantastic. Yeah, it's about 100 homes per megawatt. So, turns out to be a much easier conversion than I would have thought. <laughs> yeah, me too. I was expecting. <laughs> Like, that's why I didn't think we were going to be able to get it that quick. I was like, all right, we'll, we'll see what we can do. But nice job, man. Yeah, just add two zeros and that's your answer. <laughs> <laughs> cool. All right. So next up, microplastics found in human blood for first time by Damien Carrington of The Guardian. Another week, another damn plastics are actually bad story. <laughs> the study also found that microplastics can travel around the body and can even lodge in organs. Scientists found the tiny particles in 80% of people tested. There was a relatively small sample size of only 22 people, but it's still worth noting. The impact on human health is unknown at the moment, but researchers are pretty concerned. Microplastics cause damage to human cells in laboratory studies. So look, small sample size, but it kind of goes along with what these lab studies are showing. So this is going to be something that needs to get studied more, but expect similar, hopefully not as drastic, but still similar results. Yeah, probably. So half the samples contain PET plastic, which come from water bottles. A third of the samples contained polystyrene, which is the plastic from food packaging. And a quarter of the blood samples contained polythylene, which is from plastic bags. Yeah, this is concerning because like, dude, I, I cut out plastic bags from grocery shopping years ago, but... I don't know. I've still, I've still gotten like takeout and that has plastic food packaging or, you know, every time you go to a grocery store and you get a frozen thing of vegetables, like sometimes it's in a frozen plastic bag. Yeah. There's some things you just can't control. Like things are, are going to be plastic, like a, like a sandwich bag. Like that's, 
that's just plastic. I don't know. Like, unless you have like a brown paper bag, that's a little gross to just keep your bear sandwich just naked in, in your brown paper bag. I'm I'm not going to call you a weirdo for that, but I'm I'm judging you for it. Nick, I'm sending you something after this show. Uh, Kaylee and I have these reusable sandwich bags that you just flip inside out and throw in your dishwasher. Really? They're awesome. They're, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, I forget what the brand is, but I will send you those. Let's get you off those... Uh, those plastic sandwich bags. Yeah, I'm on the plastic sandwich bags. I don't know. I, I can't think of anything better. Yeah, you're right, though. And it comes down to a production thing because people are going to get what's out there. So, you know, I, I don't think it's a unique story for someone to think, oh, I want to carry my sandwich somewhere. It's got to go in aluminum foil or it's got to go in a plastic bag. Like those yeah. are kind of what's readily available and out there and you see it. It's not as well marketed to see the reusable bags that I'm talking about. So I will, I will send you that link. And by that, I mean, I will find out where Kaylee got them and then let you know. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. The authors of the study note that they do need to extend the sample size, like I mentioned before, to get significant data. But this was still a breakthrough to discover plastics are entering our bloodstreams. Microplastics have been found to be 10 times higher in the feces of babies compared to adults, and babies fed with plastic bottles end up swallowing millions of microplastic particles every day. My gosh. And they also said that something they'd be looking into is the length of exposure. Someone may have more microplastic contamination if they just drank from a plastic water bottle, for example. Yeah, so the next step is figuring out what this is actually doing to our bodies and how long it takes for the microplastic to pass through someone. A recent study found that microplastics can latch onto our outer membranes of red blood cells and can actually limit their ability to transport oxygen. The particles have also been found in the placentas of pregnant women. So yeah, there's a lot to unpack here and uh, doesn't look great to, to put it lightly. Yeah, no, this is, this is very, very scary to be honest with you. And studies of pregnant rats found that the microplastic particles pass rapidly through the lungs into the heart's brains and other organs of their developing fetus. Yeah. On the one hand, you know, rats are a different animal than humans. On the other hand, they're also mammals that have, you know, similar functioning nervous systems and organs. And yeah, it's, it's significant. Yeah, definitely. Uh, not, this is not exciting. <laughs> this is not exciting whatsoever. This is pretty scary to be honest. And like, I, if I just heard that, I would be like, okay. And I had a baby, I would be like, get my kid off of the plastic bottle. We're going to the store. We're getting like a glass one right now. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's all the more reason to just ditch plastics altogether when, when you can and, you know, look for the reusable stuff, look for aluminum, look for glass. The solutions are out there. We just got to be creative. Yeah, exactly. Joe Royal, the founder of the charity Common Seas sums it up best. Plastic production is set to double by 2040. We have a right to know what all this plastic is doing to our bodies. Yeah. Well said. All right, on to our last quick hit of the week, and it is by Stuart Braun of DW.com, who writes, Super Yachts Symbolize Climate Breakdown. This is a popular German publication that I found. So DW stands for Deutsche Welle, and I'm only bringing that up to practice my German pronunciation. So let me know in the comments how I did. <laughs> Yachts have been seen in the news recently a lot due to sanctions of Russian oligarchs, with many yachts being seized or moved out of European Union waters. Billionaire Roman Abramovich of Chelsea FC fame moved two of his mega yachts into sanctions-free waters like those of Turkey. 
And look, you've heard Nick and I trash yachts on the show before, but this article quantifies their emissions for us so we can continue to trash yachts scientifically. <laughs> Luxury mega yachts can burn up to 7,020 tons of CO2 per year, according to Professor Richard Wilk and a PhD candidate named Beatrice Barros. They had been documenting emissions of the world's super rich, and yachts like these are by far the worst asset to own from an environmental standpoint. We're talking about yachts that have any combination of helicopters, submarines, swimming pools, and a combination for up to 100 crew members. So, you know, all the essentials. It's just... It's beyond frustrating. Yeah, it's so hard to wrap your head around. Every time we get a yacht story on this pod, I'm just like, here we go again, man. This sucks. It really sucks. <laughs> I don't remember who it is, but one of the people we talked about one time had a small yacht to bring him out to his big yacht. <laughs> Why do some people have money? It's not It's not right. It's, it's very interesting to think of what some people use their money on, but... In any event, the top 20 billionaires in the world emitted roughly 8,000 tons of CO2 annually, while the average person in the world emits four tons. <laughs> four. <laughs> Compared to 8,000. And for anyone out there who's like, oh, well, what about the United States? Because we have more consumption than a lot of other countries. Yeah, so we emit roughly 15 tons of CO2 per person, which is still 533 times less than a billionaire in the top 20. Wow. And Abramovich, who we mentioned earlier, owns the most expensive mega yacht in the world, and it's responsible for around two-thirds of his annual carbon footprint. So in 2018, he emitted 33,859 tons of CO2 by himself. So just to compare him to Bill Gates, for example, who doesn't own a yacht, despite having 10 times more wealth than Abramovich... Gates emits around one-fifth of what Abramovich does annually because he doesn't own a yacht. Um, the article points out that Gates makes up for this gap partly because he owns several private jets. But yeah, that kind of just brings into perspective of how much a yacht will typically emit. The researchers said they can't be 100% accurate with this data because of privacy laws that protect the data for super rich consumption but they are very confident in their findings based on the information that is available. We need to protect our billionaires. Don't tax the rich. <laughs> tax us more. <laughs> if there was an MTV Cribs Yachts, I would be watching it every day. I'm not going to lie. But I still think it's senseless. I think I would hate watch it once and then just be like, why do these people have money and why is this what they're using it for? No, you're right. That's exactly how <laughs> I'd probably feel too. I'd be done after one or two episodes, but I would try. I would try. So before we move on, there is more. There's a yacht that's launching in 2025 called the Earth 300, and it's actually going to be the world's largest super yacht, but it's going to have zero emissions due to being nuclear powered. So that's going to accommodate up to 400 people. So we're talking about a massive, massive carbon free yacht. The fact that it's powered by nuclear brings in its own set of controversies. Some people are going to be pumped about it. Some people are going to be not so thrilled, but look, I'm happy to see it's at least carbon free. And for now, I'm still out on yachts. This is the only reason that Nick and I don't own one. But <laughs> look, maybe in 2030, we'll have one that's solar and wind powered. And we can get back in the yacht game and start recording every TPT episode from our renewable yacht. <laughs> that, that is the freaking dream, man. What do we what do we call our boat? What do we call our yacht? The planet tomorrow. 
because it's the future. Of- oh, <laughs> that was. Did you have that on deck? Because that was like way too I good. Didn't. Okay, I that, was that was really good. Spur of the moment. <laughs> that was fantastic. The planet tomorrow. Okay, we'll make t-shirts. Yeah, and uh, I don't know. I think I think there is nothing else of substance we can add to that. <laughs> Let's close it right there. That sounds good. <laughs> All right, that'll do it for today's episode of TPT. Nick and I are going to be back on Monday for our April documentary review. If you didn't see our post on Twitter and Instagram from earlier in the week, we're going to be reviewing Kiss the Ground on Netflix. Yes, so go check it out this weekend so you can follow along on Monday's episode with us. In the meantime, please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and leave a review for the show on Apple. The Planet Today is written and hosted by me, Matt Norton. You can follow me on Twitter at Matt Norton. We are produced every week by Nick Chinusa, who also does the music for every show. Nick, where can people bump your music all weekend long? They can bump my music at soundcloud.com slash budlincape, and that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Go bump it. Your weekend playlist looks like Harry Styles and then just a ton of Budlin Cape. <laughs> you can keep up with the entire TPT team on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Planet Today Pod or email us at planettodaypod at gmail.com. Make sure to follow our socials for an exclusive quick hit every week that we don't talk about on the show. Our logo is made by Kaylee Veets. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will catch you right here on Monday. Peace.